Hello and welcome to Investment Week's 2022 Outlook podcast series. Today we'll be looking at emerging markets. I'm Alex Rolandi, Deputy News Editor, and I have the pleasure of being joined today by Heinrich Slaber, Senior Partner at Holborn Assets, Lale Akona, Senior Market Strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management, and Damien Boucher, CIO and Portfolio Manager at Finesto Capital, a boutique of principal global investors. Hello everyone and thank you for joining me today. To start off, if you could please introduce yourselves and tell us what you think will be the main headwinds for emerging markets this year. Heinrich, if you'd like to kick things off, please. Okay, so um, I'm in South Africa. Um, I'm the senior partner for Holborn Assets uh, Global in Johannesburg. Um, our head office is in Dubai. We're a global IFA. Um, I'm a wealth advisor, so I think just up front, uh, most of my opinions will be based um, on, 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 on my personal my personal views, I think, just to just to reiterate, and and obviously, uh, although investments and portfolio management is part of our job, our main job is wealth advising and wealth building uh, for private clients. So I think we 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 might probably uh, this will be interesting because I will get uh, opinions or you know see what people think on the investment side, um, which is something that we don't focus that much on. In terms of analysing the markets um, on where to invest, uh, on uh, from a, from a Holborn perspective, we are very uh, very um, uh, serious about protecting our clients' money. So we tend to to go around the globe and find the the best fund managers that we can find uh, that gives us the right diversification and allocation of our clients' funds and and money. And obviously, we from a from a we are an emerging market as well, so. We and we've got a lot of of, of um, issues in South Africa that maybe that's not prevalent around you know with other countries like exchange controls and and some stuff like that that we have to deal with. So our clients typically look to take money out of the country uh, to protect from from you know from currency devaluations, uh, from inflation problems, from uh, socio and economic problems and stuff like that that we deal with. So as far as emerging markets are concerned, um, my, my personal opinion is that there's three main things I think this year that will, that will influence emerging markets mostly, and that would be obviously the COVID thing that we can talk about, um, the global economy and the recovery thereof or not, as well as politics and internal politics. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not that, um, how can I say, I don't, I don't think the situation will change very much this year. I don't think anything major will happen. We've got some some issues in China that needs to be resolved. We've got elections in Brazil. Uh, we've got some African problems as well. Um, and most of that's internal for the, for the countries themselves. And emerging markets, for me, when I look at them, it's, it's very difficult to put them in one group because they are so diverse. I mean, we've got the BRICS. And then we've got other, many other smaller emerging companies. But I do think, however, that there's a few major things that, that poses a lot of opportunity for emerging markets um, going forward in this year, especially I think that we've been lagging a bit. And uh, some other time, I think the opportunities will come to the fore. I'm not going to go into detail on that, but I think uh, things like consumption and infrastructure, education, health, I think there's a lot of lot of things there that, that poses a lot of opportunity. So that's I think that's how I see the opportunities and the threats for this year. Great. Lale, what are your thoughts? What do you think, uh, if you could introduce yourself, what are the major headwinds coming up as well? 
course. So thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Lala Akonar. I work as a senior market strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management. We have around $2 trillion of assets under management. I am tasked with um, helping uh, the chief strategist formulate our multi-asset strategy views. Um, for emerging markets this year, we are basically seeing um, three factors that will be driving um, the performance. One is the path of U.S. real yields. That is, as, as you guys know, very much dependent on um, how the Fed calibrates its tightening pace. And, um, you know, concerned, of course, related to that is the second factor, which is the U.S. dollar, how it will behave. It's almost up by 6% in 2021. The upside to the U.S. dollar is limited, but it is still there just because the Fed is ahead of its tightening cycle compared to the Europe and Japan. And the third factor, which is one of the main factor that, again, has driven emerging markets underperformance for 2021 is, is what happens to China growth. Um, so we're basically saying one U.S. real yields, two U.S. dollar, and, and three, the China outlook is going to be the three um, three um, factors that will be determining the performances uh, within emerging markets. Having said that, I do agree with my colleagues. It's always understand that it's not a monolithic asset class. It's not a homogeneous asset class. You have to be very much on top of the idiosyncratic developments within emerging markets, especially in, a, in an environment where the major developed markets are, you know, starting to tighten their uh, policies and um, inflationary uh, pressures are very much in the forefront in many emerging market countries, and some of them have the space to tighten their policies and some of them are not. Some of them are still lacking in their growth. So, um, you know, it's it's we always underline the importance of active asset management when we consider the emerging market outlook in 2022. Thanks. Last but not least, Damien. Right. Uh, my name is Damien Buchet. I'm uh, the chief investment officer at Finisterre Capital in London. Um, as you said, we're a boutique of the principal group, uh, and we've always been entirely dedicated to managing um, EM debt exposure for many types of investors. Uh, so our, our, our main focus is to provide uh, resilient solutions throughout the market cycle, and essentially our, our flagship approach is a total return approach where we're aiming at, you know, providing our investors with the bulk of any sustained market upside for half the downside and half the volatility, which has broadly been what we've been able to deliver over the years. Um, so in saying that, we're focusing on and actively investing across all sub-segments of emerging market debt, from hard currency sovereign, corporate debt, local currency debt. And, you know, I would, I would confirm what our, my colleagues here are, are saying, that it's such a diverse um, asset class that there is, in our opinion, always a way to make money even if you can always uh, consider that some broad influences are going to act as headwinds coming into 2022. So let's start with the headwinds. I fully agree. To me, there, are, there is one key headwind, which is, which is going to define a lot of, of the outlook, which is the pace of monetary tightening in the U.S. and at other developed market central banks, because let's not forget that the Fed has actually advanced its uh, hiking cycle uh, a little more over the past three months, but 
uh, Europe should probably do the same at some point. Um, so the pace of monetary tightening and as well the pace of fiscal retrenchment, because we're in a, you know, whether we like it or not, we're in a post-pandemic, we're entering a post-pandemic era. And it's not quite sure that the Omicron is such a concern anymore, at least for market, it doesn't look like it anymore. Um, so the headwinds should be that. Uh, and what it means for the dollar, which we still expect to be relatively strong, as, as Leil just said, uh, at least versus its G10 peers, owing to the difference in, in monetary policy momentum, uh, which should also entail a grind higher in US yield. So these are facts, potentially headwinds, but we believe that as long as they're well flagged and progressive, and well anticipated as they are at the moment by emerging market investors, they shouldn't be such a disaster. Against that, I think we're about to see two key positive catalysts for EMs. The fact that we strongly believe that inflation is about to peak in EMs and the nature of inflation in EMs, the fact that it's so commodity related compared to, you know, supply chains or labor market related in developed countries. Um, and the fact that emerging market central banks have been so proactive this time around to high rates preemptively in the face of inflation as early as the second quarter last year, makes us think that a lot has been priced and that we could come in the next two months at a point where inflation peaks out in emerging markets and we find ourselves with huge real yields very soon. Um, so we believe that technically there is a major opportunities for local bonds and currencies to recover come February, March this year. Um, the second point uh, relating to what Lei was saying is that we also believe that China is a key uh, consideration this year, but um, there is a lot of policy space left in China to stimulate the economy, and we believe the timing for that, the most auspicious timing, could be February, March, where we, we expect China to, ref to reflate its economy in a much more forceful manner. Um, so some headwinds which are well-priced, and two key positive catalysts, which probably are unpriced today, which make us quite positive on EM debt this year. Are there any other uh, headwinds investors should be wary of, uh, specifically geopolitical risks? I mean, Heinrich, you mentioned China. Uh, anything else there that might affect the outlook? Yeah, I think, uh, sorry, just, just, just quickly on that one. I, I think, I mean, obviously I agree with the fact uh, that Damien mentioned that um, COVID may not be, uh, you know, as much affected this year as it was. Uh, for me, it's not about whether the virus is there, or whether the virus is not there. It's more about how our countries and, 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 and governments react to this thing at the moment. I think that's a problem because it, for me, there's still a bit of an overreaction or, the, or there's a, a more of an overreaction now than there should be two years down the line. Um, I think, you know, from, 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 from China's point of view, the, the one thing that I that, that obviously came about last year was the, the whole situation with the um, with the property companies and internal uh, problems that they had with with some liquidity and and and, and stuff like that. I, I honestly believe that China has become so much a part of the global economy in the last 20, 30 years that I do believe that they understand that they've got a role to play and a responsibility as well. And they cannot just do as they please. I think many years ago one would say China can do whatever they want and nobody can stop them. And probably they can still do so, but I don't think they want to do so anymore. So I don't think, I don't think China is that, is that big of a, of an issue. 
We also have the India, you know, India and, and China together. If you put those two just from a consumption base and, and from a, from a, from a, an opportunity base, the potential there is just so huge. I mean, that's a third of the, of the, of almost of the, of the, of the globe's um, population that we're talking about. I mean, we, we're probably going to get to some of the, of the COVID factors a little bit later. And I would like to give, just give a couple of stats that I have, but I, I don't think geopolitically, you know, we've got the Russia, the Kazakhstan situation, the Taiwan, China situation. There's a lot of little cross-border things. I don't think any one of those would really blow out of proportion to with the global effect this year, possibly because I think people have got other stuff to worry about right now. So I think I think that would probably be a little bit subdued. Yeah, if I may, um, if I may touch upon uh, geopolitical risks that we are eyeing, Alex, for 2022, I think there are two uh, risks, at least at this moment. Um, it's hard to predict, predict geopolitical risks because by definition they are low probability high impact events um, that are very hard to estimate on how they will impact asset prices, right? For us, the, the major one that we are going to be keeping an eye on is um, what happens in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, particularly, I'm talking about the trade liberalization of, of uh, Taiwan which sets it up closer to the U.S. and brings even more tensions with, with China. We, we do believe that a military invasion is unlikely. However, um, it doesn't mean that China might, you know, try to put more economic uh, pressures on, on Taiwan, and that might lead to, again, um, in the region, some of divergences such as, you know, Japan, as we know, is, um, supporting Taiwan's application to the CPTPP, for instance, um, uh, along with the U.S. and China is opposing that. So that is um, that is something that we are eyeing um, in 2022. The second one I would say is Russia and Ukraine. Although we do think that again, um, a, a military altercation is not likely, but it doesn't mean that there won't be any financial implications, especially. Um, more financial sanctions coming into the picture. Um, that is a concern if you are heavily invested in Russia, and um, we do believe that it might have less of a, a broader impact to the markets. However, of course, um, to the debt markets, to the commodity markets, to rates markets, it might it might have an impact. So again, we are eyeing Russia and Ukraine um, very closely in 2022. Uh, for my side, um, from my side, in terms of, yeah, I agree, those geopolitical risks have been here, uh, and they've been around for some time. They're hardly a surprise. Um, yes, uh, I agree with the low probability, high impact of, the, of those by definition, but I don't think any of those risks, I mean, you could also put, you know, Turkey in the mix, you could, uh, you know, put Iraq back in the mix, and, you know, what's, uh, sorry, Iran. And what's you know the the the, the impact of Iran talk, nuclear talks on oil markets ultimately and the prospects for Iran to ever come back to the global oil market? Um, you know you have uh, disagreements within the European Union. Uh, you have um, you know the risk of uh, another political upheaval should Draghi leave power in in Italy. Uh, the sensitivity of you know Italian debt to a rise in European yields. Is very very low, 
I mean, it's very high in the sense that there is low tolerance for high yields. So all of these are, are potential uh, systemic risks, which, but, you know, I, I would go back to what Heinrich was saying. I mean, a lot of those risks are actually national in nature in the sense that they will provide for interesting positioning and trading um, uh, opportunities in, in, in several markets. I would just highlight the, the electoral cycle underway in Latin America. Uh, even though we've already had elections in Peru and Chile, uh, in Chile, as you know, there is still a constitutional pro process underway. So not uh, everything has been seen in Chile in terms of the slow decay that we've been witnessing over the past uh, couple of years. Um, Brazil is going through an election. I'm not quite sure the stakes are as high as what the market believe. You know, if we really have an alternative between Bolsonaro and Lula, I'm not sure this is as much of a... Um, potential, um, I'd say, upheaval for Brazil. If anything, I believe, you know, Lula coming back, he's a known quantity. It would probably be actually uh, an OK outcome for the market ultimately, even though in the process to that, you may have to stomach some volatility there. And then finally, the most uncertain one is probably Colombia, which for years have been, you know, leaning to the center right and could this time go to the left. And it's part of a broader phenomenon across Latin America, which is that shift to left-wing populism over the past few years. Uh, but, you know, just to say that populism remains the key consideration for us as investors. And how do you approach that? I mean, the best way is that you need to have a, a kind of political economy hat to understand those situations. In other words, the decisions made by populist leaders are not always disastrous from a macro standpoint but they're often a bit irrational and noisy. And so in order to understand their reaction function, you need to understand who they are speaking to, who are their constituencies, and, and what are their uh, political economy motives. So that, that's really what the, the advice I would give to people looking at these risks. Great, thanks. And obviously as well, throw into the mix, we're still in a pandemic and uh, generally speaking, it's been a fairly uneven recovery across the globe and how different countries are dealing with it. So uh, regarding the emergence of Omicron in December last year, has that impacted your outlooks at all or is it sort of now a case of moving on, do you think? No, for for us, it, it, it has not. Um, I think that, you know, it Doubtless, it is posing a risk to the short-term macro outlook, and we have, I think, good evidence that the, the benefits of the two vaccine doses are beginning to fade over time. But we must balance this against, um, you know, increasing signs that the third dose actually does produce a sharp rebound in immunity. Therefore, we have said and we continue to believe that it is unlikely that we will see lengthy periods of lockdowns in major developed markets, but also uh, in, in um, major emerging markets as well, um, in our opinion. So we haven't changed our view so much. Um, however, I think um, one concern, as I've said, is regarding China. That is one of the reasons why I put China as a third factor for um, the drivers for emerging market outperformance is um, we are eyeing China's zero COVID policy um, very closely. As you know, they have recently put 
in lockdown, a major city, um, Shan, which has 13 million of population, um, which might um, lead to even more lockdowns in China, which might, again, uh, put some pressures on the fragile global supply chains. Um, and the fact that they are heavily reliant on the Sinovac vaccination, uh, which uh, is questionable in terms of whether it will provide a good shield against against um, new variants, and Omicron is the most most recent ones. So that is one of the things that makes us concerned regarding Omicron. But uh, overall, as I said, um, we do believe that you know there is ample evidence um, in real life, anecdotal and from newly emerging um, research that it, it's going to be short-lived. Heinrich, you're, you're in South Africa. You saw it as it emerged pretty much firsthand. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, uh, I think uh, it, it seems at one stage as, as if South Africa was the inventor of Omicron, um, because everybody was blaming us for the thing, and it wasn't really uh, very nice to hear. We just actually named it, I think, or found it. But be that as it may, I think that for me, and, and, and again, I mean, this is a very sensitive sort of, of topic. And this is not a discussion about Omicron as such, but how it influences our, our outlook on, on, e- on the economies and stuff. So, I've, I've, I mean, for me, the virus is now mutated to a situation where it is seems to be much more, uh, what do you call it, uh, it, it infects people much easier, but it's also less severe, if one can call it that. And I, I don't say all viruses go that way, but a virus itself doesn't really has any uh, any inclination to kill its hosts too quickly, because then it will actually stop surviving itself. The the the, the thing about the, the vaccination for me is, is 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 as follows, and this is a very personal opinion. And I'm not uh, anti-vaccinations, and I'm not pro-vaccinations either way. The one thing I do think is that if we believe that we will be able to continue to vaccinate the globe's population for the next 10 years against every variant that comes up, it's going to be impossible. I think they've already proved, not proven, but let's say we accept now that Omicron does not necessarily act the same to the vaccinations that we already have against Beta and Delta um, as the previous, as the vaccinations obviously affected those two variants. So at the end of the day, for me, it's a, it's a little bit of a ge- genetic gamble at the moment because I've had uh, COVID myself. I did not even know that I have it. If I didn't test positive, I wouldn't know that I had. That was the that was the Delta variant. Omicron, I think I may have had it twice already. So it seems as if it affects people differently. Now, what I what I what I tried to find out was this. So if you look at Two countries with the lowest vaccination percentages in the world at the moment, Ethiopia at 3% and Cameroon at 2%, their deaths is 6 out of 100,000 and 7 out of 100,000. If you look at Portugal and Peru, which are two of the most highly vaccinated populations at 82 and 64%, their deaths are 185 against 6 and 624 per 100,000 against 7. So what I'm saying is that if I, when I look at the, at the thing around the globe, how it worked, there's a central part of the world, and Africa seems to be mostly included in that, where there were actually very many or very few deaths. And these are countries with the lowest level of health care that's available. If you look at um, the, the U.S. and you look at the U.K., and the deaths per 100,000 with probably most, some of the most advanced health systems in the world, 
What I'm trying to say here is that it's very difficult to draw a line and say this is the way it's going to be. But I do believe that we should get to a point now where, you know, but if you had if you had uh, COVID before and you were not severely ill, then I don't know if the vaccination is going to help you much. If you've already had it and you were very ill, then obviously you genetically you are prone to become more ill and you should get vaccinated. So as far as the that question of yours also coming here, as far as the leveling up, will it really help if the developed world start um, distributing billions of, of vaccine shots to the developing world? If it seems already at, from the figures that the developing world in most places were not really that much affected. So we've got we've got. 5% of the population test positive, and of that, about 2.5% dies. But yet all these economic lockdowns have probably influenced and affected 80, 75 to 80% of the world's population. So how far are we going to push this thing, and for how long are we going to continue doing this? Because I'm, I'm, I'm just not sure who's killing the most people at the moment, the, 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 the virus or the economic po- or the policies, let's say the virus policies. So that's my opinion, how it's going to influence emerging markets this year. If it goes like it's going now without the, the, the rest of the world distributing more vaccinations to anywhere, I think emerging markets are going to come out better than the developing world at the moment just because of their policies. And that's just, just my personal opinion. Thanks, Heinrich. David. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I'm not sure if uh, the developing world was less affected or not than, than, than developed countries on that, because, you know, of course, stats are less than perfect in most of the countries we cover. So it's always very difficult to trace, you know, who was affected and what were the causes of that. But one thing is probably certain, and I, I'll definitely back Heinrich on that, the fact that, you know, soon enough in this pandemic, a number of uh, emerging market governments have found that the cost of, you know, replicating the same harsh measures as in developed countries, i.e. locking down your economy, was barely adding, you know, economic distress to the human loss from the virus itself. You know, as we've been able to see plainly in India or in Peru, the fact that so many people lost their jobs, died of hunger, uh, only added to the pain without necessarily solving the issue. Um, so at the end of the day, very, very quickly in this pandemic, I started to believe for probably a number of bad reasons, which are that, uh, you know, from a political economy standpoint, populations have very low expectations as to their health systems to be able to cope with such a pandemic. I would also say that you know, in some countries, take Africa. Africa is not stranger to pandemics, and uh, it's interesting to consider that maybe some African countries are already well trained in terms of what to do during pandemics, uh, better than our countries. So it may have come as less of a, as a surprise, but for you know, good or bad political economy reasons, there were reasons why uh, early on emerging market governments realized that they had to let the economy run. And that's why we've seen that, you know, growth was able to accrue much earlier. We didn't have these repeated lockdowns uh, in emerging markets. As it's looking in the last, last release of PMIs, it's slowing down a little bit, but we're still largely above 50 in most emerging countries these days. Now, there is one exception to that, with Le- which Leil was, uh, was talking about, which is Asia and, you know, the fact that Asia has long practiced this, uh, this zero COVID policy. Now, most Asian countries are slowly moving away from that, but China remains 
intent on making sure at least and then you can start to, to second guess what the what the plan is, but at least until the Olympics, no COVID case enters the country. Uh, hence the the reason why consumption has been subpar in in China, uh, and it's only uh, compounding the pain of of the the, the the property slowdown there. But back back to the Omicron, I think yes, uh, I broadly agree. The Omicron is probably the sign that you know virus becoming dominant and being far less lethal. Is probably a sign that we are getting closer to the end of the pandemic rather than the beginning. The one caveat to that remains that as long as large parts of the world population in, you know, deprived countries remain unvaccinated, you have no guarantee that no other variants will ever come up. And so we've seen the Omicron. It was spotted in South Africa, but nothing says that it originated in South Africa. Um, uh, but but that could still happen in the in the future. That's the only caveat. But otherwise, I think we're getting closer to the end. For me, one of the reasons why why uh, especially African, I mean South America was quite badly affected. But uh, and and I agree with Damien. You know the figures are not always trustworthy. And I'm going to be very honest with you to say that I believe that one can always question anything that comes out of China as far as that's concerned. But be that as it might, especially when it comes to stats and figures. But I think one of the reasons, obviously, Africa may have been less affected is obviously Africa is less mobile than other parts of the world, uh, uh, you know, as a, as a whole, because people don't move around that fast and that quickly because of infrastructure and stuff like that. And also, for most of Africa, because of political um, and other struggles and stuff like that, people don't cross borders that freely as in the Americas or even in Europe, obviously, people cross borders all the time. And that's how, why they were a lot affected. I think the one thing that I mentioned in the previous question was, and that's why I still see COVID as one of the probable head, head, headwinds, is that this virus, because most people are now actually uh, asymptomatic, I think uh, they, will, they will test less and they will isolate less. That means that it will spread, obviously, quicker because people will keep moving around amongst each other. For me, the one danger is that if we do not continue mutating towards a less killing virus and we find another one that's deadly in this situation with all the infections, I think that can, there's still a probability, it may be small, but I think there's still a probability that a very, very deadly variant will come around and it will spread so quickly that we will not be able to cope. And I think that's still a possibility. Um, and I, I, I pray to God that doesn't happen because I don't think we will be able to cope. If it spreads this fast, as Omicron does, and it kills as quickly as Delta or the previous one did, then we will have a problem. Let's talk about decarbonisation now. We obviously hear a lot of talk about net zero goals and we've got COP26 just behind us. So from an investment point of view, where do emerging markets fit in? And do developed nations have a right to tell them what to do? Yeah, if I may... Um I may start on this question. I think one of the dilemmas that is facing emerging markets is that how do you reduce emissions while at the same time trying to continue to grow at a rate that could be faster than the, the developed markets with a view to, to have the income levels catch up as well? That's, that is the dilemma that we're seeing in emerging markets. Um, indeed, when you look at the fastest growing emerging markets, such as China, India, Indonesia, and the Philippines, 
they are the ones that have actually failed to reduce their per capita emissions over at least in the past five years. Um, so there, the, having said that, though, I, I do believe that these one of the things that we're looking um, to see whether um, emerging markets will be able to catch up with the uh, COP26 objectives is, first of all, in terms of unlocking the international finance to deliver the climate goals, whether that will be applicable for uh, for emerging markets. I think one of the key objectives from COP26 was to basically saying that they want to mobilize at least, I think the number was $100 billion per year in climate finance, um, where, you know, international financial institutions will also play a very important role by delivering on their, you know, earlier promises and helping to unlock both private and public sector funds. So what we're going to, um, you know, see whether that is going to be applicable in emerging markets as well, whether, you know, they will be able to replace the um, existing power and transport infrastructures before the end of the of that capital structure's natural life cycle, and whether there is enough private sector and public sector funds that will be able to achieve that. Um, there are some countries where we are seeing this, such as in Brazil, for example, where Banco Central is committed to basically providing incentives for green finance. Um, in China, as you guys know, in 2021, again, China overtook the U.S. as the um, leading issuer of, of, of green bonds. Um, so there are progresses that are being um, made in some of the emerging markets in terms of like whether private sector finance is becoming increasingly available for some of the some of the key objectives. But um, but but there is a lot of a lot of um, room to be um, room for for countries to uh, play a catch up. And as uh, that is because, as I've said, that dilemma that is existing in emerging markets, how do you achieve your uh, macroeconomic goals while also trying to meet the COP26 um, climate change targets. Yeah, um, I agree that that's the, the, the key challenge and it can only take place over multiple years. So I'm, I'm a bit skeptical about, you know, emerging markets meeting the net zero target by, you know, 2035 or, or so. Um, I mean, the, the, the key hotspots there um, if you start with the lowest hanging fruit, I mean, lowest hanging fruit, or the the trees that really hide the forest uh, are really India and China with regards to coal, um, coal, coal um, firing power plants. Um, so the, the, these two are, are, are really the one um, under uh, the ones to focus on. Um, here as well, yeah, I mean, it, it will involve a lot of financing. So where can they find this financing? Yes, I agree. Green bonds are surging. So we're seeing that uh, and it's really taking off now. So that's part of the uh, of the solution. I mean, it's not necessarily just a moral stance that the financial industry will take, but it's just that, you know, the urge to have green investments will just naturally draw people into subscribing to green bonds. So it's uh, it's a case of supply meeting demand here. Uh, and that's that's mechanical almost. So, yes, green bond financing will only surge from here. Uh, actually, it's no longer obvious that, you know, green bonds at first were were seen, you know, uh, were sold to a, a smaller specialized investor base and were often priced at tighter 
lower yields, tighter spreads. That's no longer the, the, the case now. Green bonds are trading pari passu with, uh, with normal bonds. So you don't lose money by investing in green bonds, and they are now much more mainstream in terms of who buys them. And surely for emerging markets, and especially frontier ones, we were talking about the sub-Saharan Africa in particular, but, you know, redistribution of global money through multilateral institutions, bilateral institutions remains key there. Um, so, you know, when you have such things as, you know, the SDR issuance um, or any, you know, World Bank plan, I mean, it, those will be increasingly tied to um, carbon reduction objectives in the future. Um, so I think it's going to go at its own pace, but we're getting there. You can see be skeptical about the ability of EMs to meet their COP26 targets. A lot of that is political and depends on India and China in particular, partly on Brazil through the deforestation issues. But hopefully that could change if we have a change of leadership in Brazil next year. Um, but yeah, these are the elephants in the room, India, China, Brazil. And therefore, the rest, a lot depends on the ability to mobilize uh, global finance, but mostly through multilaterals, which remain the, the name of the game for smaller countries in particular. Heinrich, what are your thoughts? Yeah, let me, let me, let me say that my thoughts are going to be based around individual investors. Uh, what, 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 do my, what does my investor want? So with other words, for me, investing in ESG, green bonds, any, any kind of thing like that, investment for me and for my clients is not a social activity. Um, it's about returns. It's about risk and reward. So if we, if I'm going to say to my clients, let's put some of the portfolio into some, uh, some ESG funds. It's because at the moment, like Damien rightly says, they are doing well. So I'm going to make money for you from that. The moment that stops, there's going to be no more incentive for me to put my client's money in there. I'm going to withdraw. So for me, at, at, it's, at the moment, the ESG thing is a feel-good thing. It, it makes people feel good, and it's making money. So the question is, which one of the two weighs the most? I think making money is going to weigh more at the end of the day. As far as allocating money to emerging markets uh, for, for changing behavior, I honestly believe that my experience with emerging markets says to me that if you are going to pour money into a country, especially if you're going to pour it into government funds or government uh, coffers, I think you're going to make a mistake because I don't think the money is going to go where it needs to go. Um, as far as green bonds are concerned, I think I'm, I'm not sure because I'm not technically as, as advanced as some of my colleagues here in terms of how these things work. I'm not sure where the money is going to. Um, but for me, Investing in, in these types of things, whether you're going to invest into a company that do certain things or even a government, I believe it, it should be a, a more of a, an incentive and a reward than a please. Because if you're going to put money in there and say, here's a couple of billion dollars, please do the following. I'm, I'm, I'm just not sure it's going to help. Damien mentioned, how are we going to find enough funds to make these changes happen? Because like, uh, and I, I just... Uh, Sort of, uh, Lali, Lali mentioned the, the social, the social problems that we have. Um, let's go back. I understand South Africa very well. Even now, when we mention the fact that we may put up nuclear power plants or more solar plants or more wind plants, I mean, we're one of the sunniest countries in the world. We can probably generate almost all our energy from the sun if we wanted to. 
But that means that a few hundred thousand people may, may lose their jobs. I mean, China and India are coal burners. Who provides the coal? South Africa provides the coal, or some of it anyway. And our own plants run on coal because a lot of people work in the mines, a lot of people work in these plants. So if you're going to try and get around that and, and, and incentivize people to move in a different direction, you're going to have hundreds of millions of people without jobs. And I don't think that the markets is actually able to provide enough funds to, to, to stop that. And then another, just another quick problem about emerging markets asking for the developed world to help them with these things. Is as far as I'm concerned, a lot of the emerging markets, the countries themselves are actually not willing to do what needs to be done to do it because I think technology is available. The technology can be done. Somebody's going to have to make money from this. It's either the developing market country's government that's going to make money or some capitalist company that's going to make money. So I think the choice is going to be, have to be made. Are we going to open our borders so that these technologies can come in and start making the difference? Or are we just going to keep on asking for money to make the change? Because I think the latter is not going to work. Thanks, Heinrich. I think that's all we've got time for today, I'm afraid. So thank you very much, everyone, for sharing your insights. It'll be interesting to see how 22, 2022 pans out.